doing right now. Uh, so AP Apologetics Press, where I work, I've been in the we've been in the business of uh, defending New Testament Christianity for over 35 years now, and if you can believe that. And as you're aware, I'm sure we're involved in many areas of apologetics. Uh, so defending the Christian faith, of course, the existence of God, inspiration of the Bible, and deity of Christ have always been the big three. Uh, but also dealing with evolution and, and modern uh, science issues like those we've talked about. Uh, but also, you know, things like homosexuality, the silencing of God in, in our culture around us. But by far, the hallmark subject that we've spent a lot of time addressing over the years, especially in the realm of science, is evolutionary theory and the Big Bang. And so we've showed that the naturalistic uh, evolution and and Big Bang, not supported by the evidence. In fact, they contradict the evidence on many accounts. Uh, and many counts, they are a blind faith in many key places. There's zero evidence to support many uh, key places in the evolutionary model that would be necessary in order to substantiate it. And so we we continue to stay on these topics as new things are brought to the table by naturalists in the media, and we feel like we need to keep doing that because these issues are chipping away at Christendom's faith in the Bible in a widespread way. In fact, we're finding that four out of ten uh, young people, when they leave home, are, are leaving the church. Four out of ten of our young people. Two of those four, so half of that four out of ten, go into the denominational world. The other two become irreligious in large part due to science-related matters. And so we spend a lot of, and especially evolution and naturalism being shoved down our kids' throats from a young age in the public school system. And so we, we, we gotta be able to deal with evolution. We gotta be able to teach our children, you know, the truth, the biblical creation model. We can, we can count on that. And so we as Christians, we're examining the evidence, we counter evolution. But what happens in this day and age when we've done our job and evolution has been defeated in a person's mind? What are they left with? A few decades ago, Americans were by and large Christian in their thinking, and so when evolutionary theory really started to gain ground in America and Christian evidences organizations refuted the arguments being made by the evolutionists, it was natural for people to fall back on their faith in the Bible and God. But think about it, that's, that's not really the case anymore. Because pluralism and tolerance and acceptance of diverse religious views has now been pushed in our society for several decades. And so now when evolutionary theory is refuted in the minds of the next generation, it's not so easy to convince them which origins model is the truth. Because there's a lot of options out there. It's not so easy to convince people that the biblical model is the true model just because evolution's false. Where's the scientific evidence for the biblical creation model, they ask. So the evolutionists say, hey, we at least have something to work with. You guys are just trying to pick holes in ours. But where's your model? Where's the biblical creation model? You know, how does the, the evidence really fit with the biblical creation model? You guys don't have evidence for what you believe in. These are the claims that they're making. You guys have a blind faith in the, in the flood and in creation. Now, we should be careful in the church with how we use the term faith. See, the denominational world defines faith as believing in something without evidence and even against the evidence, even against common sense. 
All right, now that's not a good thing, because biblical faith in God is not blind. It's not a blind leap hoping that there's someone at the bottom of the cliff to catch you. That would be what we call fideism. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, that's reliance on faith, and they use this as blind faith, rather than reason in pursuit of religious truth. So notice that modern dictionaries put faith in contrast with reasoning from the evidence. Because that's what the bulk of the religious world has come to believe about the nature of faith. But when you, when you do a study of what, of the, the biblical model on faith, what you find is that it's belief or trust that's based on evidence, a foundation of evidence. Just like, um, you believe or trust someone because they have proven themselves to be trustworthy, that's evidence. Similarly, the biblical model is based on, on evidence. So blind faith is irrational. It's drawing conclusions not warranted by the evidence or believing in something without proof. The Bible warns against that. Test or prove or examine everything carefully and only hold fast to that which is right or good. So, you know, don't believe everything that people tell you, but test the spirits because many false prophets have gone into the world, First John 4.1. Uh, the Bereans knew to search for evidence that what they were being taught was right. Acts 17.11 uh, Jesus told the Jews to not believe him if he didn't back up his claims with evidence. In that particular case, it was miracles there in John 10.37. So our faith is not blind. It is based on evidence. And it's crucial that we provide evidence for the creation model if we expect other people to believe it. And if we want to win the hearts and minds of, this, of people in this scientific age in which we live, we need to be ready to fill the void that we leave when we counter evolution and fill it with a model that can be shown to harmonize with the scientific evidence. We have to fill that void with the true model of our origins before other false models fill in the gap. So notice, refuting error becomes pointless if we don't turn around and teach the evidence for the truth. So enter modern creation science. Question, where do we go to to get answers when we have scientific challenges that are levied against the biblical flood model or the creation model? All right, so we're supposed to be ready to give a defense with evidence. All right, so where do we turn? Well, we, we probably typically turn to our Christian evidence organizations that we hope will have the answers to the specific challenges being made. There's specific science questions and so forth. Okay, well, who are they turning to for answers that are backed by actual scientific data and fieldwork rather than just speculation and conjecture? There are what I would say, what I would describe to be a handful of young earth creation scientists that really we're all counting on to step up and try to fill the gap in this area. So these are guys that are getting out into the field, they're doing science, doing fieldwork, uh, gathering evidence that supports the biblical model uh, geologists, paleontologists, and biologists, cosmologists, meteorologists, physicists, engineers, and so they're they're studying the text of the Bible to extract as many clues as they can to sort out exactly what God has told us about the history of the earth and the universe and our origins, and then they're using modern scientific knowledge to do research and testing to develop a robust scientific model that explains the evidence of the universe from a biblical perspective. I actually got an entire seminar uh, going through that. It's seven sessions long, a lot of material, a lot of material on that. And we at AP are quoting from these scientists uh, many times in defense of the biblical model. We, we refer to their work to defend the Bible. 
But there's just not enough of these guys to do what needs to be done. And now notice, again, we can speculate and theorize all day to try to explain the physical evidence in light of Scripture. You know, we can say, well, you know, the, the Grand Canyon was carved by the flood. Uh, maybe a bunch of water from the flood froze to capture the woolly mammoths. Or maybe claim that, that water came from the flood, uh, the water for the flood came from a, a bubble above the earth that popped during the flood. All right, now guess what? Naturalists can do the same thing with speculating and theorizing. They also can make theories to try to explain the physical evidence in light of naturalism. So how do we refute their arguments and substantiate our own? Okay, actual, hands-on field work and research, gathering proof, physical evidence that supports our theories. And there are a few creation scientists doing that kind of work. But several of the leading scientists, frankly, are getting old. Some are in their, their uh, approaching retirement uh, age. Some are, are deep into their 60s. So the, the field scientists are shorthanded. All right, so what does that mean? Well, obviously that's going to affect how much can be done. It affects how much peer review can be done of that work, which of course is important because you don't want to rely on the work or opinion of just one individual when you're trying to go to battle against skeptics who are looking and looking for flaws in our work. And the fact that they're shorthanded also affects how quickly things can get done in developing the creation model. And another problem that we're encountering is that these guys are denominational. The leaders in the field are denominational. So as far as I've been able to find, very, very few professional scientists that are members of the church can claim to be doing first-hand scientific research, specifically in the field of creationism, trying to find the evidence to support the biblical model. So we're having to count on the field work of these denominational guys. Now, it's not that we don't have people studying what they're doing, because we do that at AP, and others are doing that too, and that's important. But see, historically, that's not been what AP has been about, getting into the field. And so let's face it, the Brotherhood, by and large, hasn't been out there actually gathering data in the field, specifically helping to build the creation model. Now, this was really highlighted, the issue with that, in this debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham. Raise your hand if you saw this or heard about it. Okay, a few of you. Um, Bill Nye made, this was specifically over the biblical creation model, a debate. And Bill Nye, the pseudoscience guy, made some great arguments against Ken Ham that Ken Ham, frankly, did not deal with in that debate. Even though the, the answers had been given, um, have been actually answered, even on, on the Answers in Genesis website, where he's the CEO of that company. But he didn't respond to it. So the world was left with this picture as though the biblical creation model doesn't have an answer to these questions. And he highlighted some, some things, Bill and I highlighted some things that we would not be able to answer without people being in the field in these specific areas studying these things. You know, how do we explain the alleged hundreds of thousands of years of layering in the ice cores of Greenland and Antarctica? Okay, well, we rely on the work of denominational creation meteorologists that have studied that matter firsthand. Uh, when Big Bang theorists challenge creationists to explain how do you get starlight from stars that are billions of light years away from us in only a few thousand years? Okay, we're relying on denominational creation astronomers, astrophysicists, and cosmologists to give us an answer. Uh, when they challenge us to explain the cosmic microwave background radiation in space that they use as evidence for the Big Bang, and they say, okay, how do you guys explain it? 
You know, how do you explain the CMB from the creation model? Okay, we lean on the expertise of denominational scientists who do that kind of work and study. When geologists challenge creationists to explain the origin of the Grand Canyon from a young earth perspective, we rely on creation geologists to give an answer, and again, they're by and large denominational scientists. You noticing the trend here? It's also not as though we don't have many professional, excellent scientists in the Brotherhood. It's that their jobs don't generally allow them the time and the money to be able to do this kind of research. And so they're typically busy doing secular work or teaching at our Christian universities where we don't have creation research centers like the denominational world does in some cases, where they have uh, funding and students for this kind of field work. This is something uh, that I'm hoping to have at Apologetic Express where we have field scientists doing this kind of work, if we can raise that kind of money. If that's something you're, that you see as a problem, please talk to me. We, I'm trying right now to raise funds. Uh, I've got a young man that's finishing up at Freed. He's going to go on to get his Ph.D. in geology, and he's, he's banging on the door. He's ready to do this kind of work, and I'm just crossing my fingers that we'll have a salary raised for him at that time. Right now I've got about $450 a month raised. That's uh, you know not a really big salary. Uh, so if you know people that could help with that project, please let me know. But anyway, not, that's not the point of what I'm talking about here. So what are we doing about this problem in the Brotherhood? As far as I can tell, essentially nothing. Uh, we don't even, most of our brethren don't even know that this is a problem. We're leaving the field work up to these others. We're, we're counting on them to do it. We're counting on them to fund it. And then we just sit back and wait and hope that they'll get answers to the challenges being posed by people like Bill Nye and, and uh, Shermer, people like Shermer, Michael Shermer is coming at us. And in many cases, we're counting on those denominational scientists to not only gather the data, but then interpret the data for us when the evidence that they're gathering is out of our field of expertise and above our pay grade. And so the problem with that is sometimes they interpret things in a different way than we would because they have a different understanding of the Bible and the world than we do, and yet we're relying on them and their work. Are we seeing the problem? I believe we have a major problem here. This is a problem that's only going to grow larger and larger as science progresses and as many of, of these more conservative, old-school, young-earth denominational scientists die out. So the denominational world of academia is not friendly to the young-earth perspective, by and large, even among the conservative denominations. And so this problem is going to grow larger and larger, and Christians are going to have fewer and fewer people that we can rely on for answers to modern scientific challenges. All right, we need to be ready to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with these secular scientists in developing and defending the true creation model. I believe God expects us to do that. And there's many passages that could be used to support that. The works of the Lord are great. They're studied by all that pleasure in them. We're, we need to study the works of the Lord um, so that we can tell others about God's works, the heavens that declare the glory of God. We need to study that. We need to study the things that are made that proclaim the existence and attributes of God. Evidence is so clear that to reject them is without excuse. We need to be able to defend the biblical model with science, being ready always to give a defense. All right, so with all those things in mind over the last few years, really since that debate, that Bill Nye Kinham debate, AP's been trying to do something about this problem uh, in the small way that we can. I've been representing AP in the field with frontline scientists in the creation movement, studying geology, paleontology, meteorology, physics, and biology with the leading professional 
creation scientists uh, that are doing this kind of work. They're seeing what's going on in the field with those creation scientists uh, who are studying the created order to find, in order to find evidences. So for the rest of this session, I want to fill you in on several of the things going on in creation science today uh, that I'm learning about in my travels with these guys. In uh, 2014 and uh, 2016, I had the opportunity to participate in two geologic field expeditions for several days, traveling to eastern Wyoming with Dr. Kurt Wise to study the land's formation. Uh, Wise is a young earth creation geologist and paleontologist. He got his Ph.D. from Harvard under the advisement of the late Stephen Jay Gould, who's a famous evolutionist, probably the most famous evolutionist from recent times. We've quoted from him many times over the years when addressing evolution. The Lance Formation, where we, where we were studying uh, and exploring, is several layers of rock in the geologic column that many creationists believe were some of the last layers laid down during the flood, although there's considerable debate over that issue. The formation is found at the top of what we call the Cretaceous System in the geologic column. This is just under what's called the KT or KPG boundary. This is where the Cretaceous System meets what we call the tertiary system. Now that is the location of a mysterious extinction event that secular geologists believe happened 65 million years ago that supposedly wiped out all the dinosaurs and about 75% of all the other plant and animal species on the planet. Now creation scientists, however, believe that the Lance Formation, again, was actually laid down towards the end of the flood just a few thousand years ago. Many, many dinosaur fossils have been found in the Lance Formation especially in the Lance Creek area where this expedition took place. Uh, Triceratops, Edmontosaurus, Tyrannosaurus are typical fossil finds, and I'll talk more about that later. Now, the most exciting evidences for the flood that we discovered were several uh, special layers within the Lance Formation called seismites. And there are quite a few, more than 25 of these layers that we discovered. And so from what we can tell, the concept of a seismite is a relatively new idea in geology. Geologists haven't even noticed their existence for all that long. Seismites form when you have an earthquake vibrating a layer of sediment, wet sediment like sand in, in this case. So uh, the sediment is kind of like the soggy sand that's under the water line along uh, the shoreline. When an earthquake happens, it shakes that soggy sand and the water within it tries to escape from the sand upward kind of like magma from a volcano. If the sand were to dry out after the earthquake then and turn to stone, so lithify, and you were to then cut that sandstone in two or it eroded away on the edge and you looked at the inside layers, you would see these squiggly lines, uh, convolutions that form where the water had, was trying to uh, uh, squeeze out of the sand as it was being shaken by the earthquake. These are called fluid avulsion structures. And when we have major earthquakes today, like the one in Alaska in 1964, 8.2 magnitude earthquake, a huge, it creates a seismite in wet sediment. Uh, the Alaskan earthquake made a seismite that was about 11 inches, and that's typical when geologists study seismites today for major earthquakes. You find a few centimeters to a few inches for magnitude 9 earthquakes. All right, now, if the flood occurred, one of the things you've got to be able to do in science is make predictions. We don't mean prophecies in the future. We mean, okay, I think, um, you know, let's, I believe that there's this force where if you've got an immense mass, it's going to tend to pull smaller masses towards it. We'll call it gravity. It's kind of like a magnet. Okay, so if, I, if I'm right, I predict that if I drop my remote, what's going to happen? 
is going to be pulled towards this massive mass of the ground. Okay, now I can test that prediction and help to verify, gather support for my theory. Now, if I drop it, it doesn't go anywhere and it floats, I've now falsified my theory, right? All right, so if the flood happened, we can make a prediction here. We would expect there to be seismites in the flood layers because they form where there's wet sediment and where there are earthquakes, which we predict to, to be the case because all of the fountains of the great deep break up during the flood. Uh, according to, to Genesis 6 through 9. So the modern flood model that is popular today involves uh, plate tectonic theory, but a catastrophic form of that called catastrophic plate tectonics. Again, I talk about that in, a, in that seminar. Uh, but suffice it to say, it's supported by a lot of evidence, and it predicts that many of today's mountains were formed during the flood when the Earth's plates were smashing into each other. Now, if that's true, we would predict enormous seismites to exist in flood sediment, and a lot of those. Well, that's exactly what we find in the lance, but there's a catch. The seismites we find are not just a few centimeters or inches thick, like 9.0 magnitude earthquakes. They're several meters thick. They are so huge that we have no modern reference point to understand what magnitude earthquakes that would have been creating these. We're talking mountains are forming, is the way to try to explain what's going on here. Mountains are forming rapidly. This means that, okay, number one, because of these seismites, you know the whole area is once covered with a lot of water, enough water to make several meters of sand soggy. Number two, several major earthquakes happen. Uh, so we found over 25 distinct seismite layers. So we got at least 25 different earthquakes, major earthquakes going on, and we're just looking at a tiny area in the geologic column here. So those seismites could have only been formed from earthquakes that are so huge that no human has experienced them, except for Noah and his family, who are probably still on the ark at this point, floating above on the water, wouldn't have even noticed this going on underneath the water during the time period when the, when the mountains are forming. So this is proof of catastrophism like would be predicted from the flood, uh, not uniformitarianism like evolution would predict. All right, so how are evolutionists likely to respond to this? Well, we just got to guess because it's too new for them to, uh, to even respond to. Recall that the KT boundary, which crosses the area that we're working in, is the line above which there are no known dinosaur fossils. And so secular scientists believe the dinosaurs died out by something that happened at that boundary. Uh, one theory gaining ground among secular geologists is that a meteorite impact caused the extinction because we find a massive crater that was discovered uh, off the coast of Mexico that appears to line up precisely with the KT boundary, uh, the Chicxulub crater. And this is a representation of that meteorite, understanding that uh, this is a secular portrayal. We would say that this, when this meteorite hit, it was likely towards the end of the flood, which means the earth is, is still would have had a lot more water on it that hadn't receded yet. So anyway, they would point to a seismite as proof of the shockwave from the impact of that meteorite. But that prediction doesn't fit the actual facts at the lance formation in Wyoming, which again, you can only know if you go do the field work. Uh, number one, it doesn't explain why the entire area, literally thousands of miles away from this crater, would have been covered with water. Enough water to saturate meters upon meters of sediment hundreds of feet. Now, we can explain that using the flood model, but they can't. Number two, if the dinosaurs are in the relative area there in Wyoming, which we would expect since they're buried there, 
then either they were all living in that already water-saturated area, and therefore apparently are not really land animals, which goes against the modern definition of a dinosaur, or the area wasn't usually underwater, and whatever killed them involved unusually high amounts of water. Which again, wouldn't make sense if we're just talking about a meteorite. Now if you're closer to the, to the meteorite, you're certainly going to get hit by a tidal wave if that meteorite hits the water. But not if you're thousands of miles away. In fact, geologists estimate that the southeastern states of the U.S. would have been affected by the tsunami from this impact. And they list Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. But not the northwest, which is where we're working. Number three, the size of even a three-foot seismite would be termed unearthly by the secular community, much less three-meter seismites. In other words, there is no known earthly mechanism that could explain that. They're unearthly. And so they postulate something extraterrestrial had to do this, like meteorites. Now the problem is that we found seismites essentially every 80 vertical feet throughout the lance, and the prediction is there's going to be dozens, even, and even outside the lance, we'll find them everywhere not just those we've documented so far. So while there is the Chicxulub crater at the KT boundary, and there's a seismite at that boundary that could be argued to correspond to that moment in history, but not without problems again, that doesn't explain the several other seismites above and below this line. Okay, so now did multiple massive meteorites hit? Well, that doesn't work for at least two reasons. Number one, there's no evidence of enormous craters corresponding to these enormous seismites. And number two, these seismites appear to be virtually cyclical, spread out at regular intervals, which would imply that these meteorites would have had to strike in such a cyclical, regular way, and there's no evidence that that occurs. Okay, well, was there one massive event that caused all the seismites to form at once? Well, that's a problem because, number one, the seismites form in wet sediment, so hundreds of vertical feet of sediment would have to be wet for seismites to form in all of them. So that already is going to be a problem. It's not a problem for the flood model. Number two, it would require an impact too huge to be even considered possible. It'd probably break the earth up. And number three, there are layers of sandstone between the seismites that we found, which aren't seismites. So if one major event occurred, then they should have formed seismites as well. And so we deduce that the evidence points to multiple earthly events, not extraterrestrial in, in origin, that are catastrophic. So bottom line, while meteorites certainly could have played a role in the flood, and in fact, I've recently been studying that subject, um, the, uh, I think somewhere around half of the meteorite craters that we have discovered on land that have been verified as being confidently meteorite impacts all fall in the flood layers. Meteorite impacts are a major part of what happens in the flood. Of course, something we never even really talk about. They may have even initiated the flood. But again, I talk about that in a in a different in a different seminar. But regardless, these meteorites probably played a major role in the flood. That is true, and yet that doesn't correspond to what we're finding there in uh, in Wyoming. So an explanation which fits best would be that the fountains of the Great Deep are breaking up. It's causing enormous earthquakes. It's, we've got the Rocky Mountains right there, uh, close to where we're at, studying Wyoming. Those are being formed rapidly during this major event that's going on with all this water and so forth. So notice, this is the kind of field work 
that needs to be done to help to build and solidify the creation model. And AP is being able to get in the mix on this. In 2015, I was able to go on two creation field trips and was able to bring along one of our summer interns, Noah Eisenhower, to help out. And we were able to travel into the Grand Canyon for several days by raft with the leading creation Grand Canyon geologist, Dr. Stephen Austin. Secular critics call him the Dean of Grand Canyon Studies among creationists. Uh, we went with him to study the canyon and learn about evidences of the flood and how the canyon was formed from a young earth perspective. Uh, the Grand Canyon is perhaps the most often used evidence of an old earth. Secular geologists are notorious for using the Grand Canyon to try to prove that the Bible is wrong. They'll look, for example, at how long it takes sand particles to build up in uh, on desert sand dunes today, and they will compare that deposition process uh, to the sandstone layers you find at the Grand Canyon. And you determine that based on sand deposition rates today and the thickness of those sandstone layers in the Grand Canyon, well, it must have taken millions of years for those canyon layers to form. They add to that the assumption that in between each of those layers, uh, where there were long periods of time where there wasn't much buildup of sediment, just erosion by rivers and wind and lakes and so forth. So we were able to go into the Grand Canyon with an expert firsthand to see evidence that refutes those ideas. So, for example, in the geologic column, there's a distinct line lower in the strata that we can't usually see in the normal terrain that we live on. Uh, this is a line that sits right above what we call uh, the Precambrian, uh, the Precambrian strata there. And um, this is dated as over 500 million years old in secular thinking. So in the canyon, um, those pre-Cambrian strata are tilted as though they were lifted up, and then all of a sudden, starting, uh, they're, they're cut off horizontally by this line, that ex this erosion surface that extends through the Grand Canyon and even across the whole Earth. Okay, that you can find this on other continents. And then starting at that line going up, boom. I mean, you've got this explosion of fossils in these layers that are already fully formed without any evolutionary history. And they're killed by some kind of water event because they're in sedimentary rock. Okay, we call this the Cambrian explosion. So the explosion of life preserved as fossils that appears at the base of the Cambrian strata. Had the opportunity to see this line in the 2014, and whenever I was in Colorado with Dr. Austin visiting Garden of the Gods there, that line is known as the Great Unconformity. And again, it stretches across the planet. I was able to see that again at the Grand Canyon with Dr. Austin. Now, something significant happened at this point in history that affected the entire Earth. Well, that line represents what creation geologists overwhelmingly believe to be the beginning of the biblical flood. And here are some of the evidences of that in the Grand Canyon that we were able to study. Uh, you might remember from Earth Science class back in middle school that there are different kinds of rock on the Earth. You've got your metamorphic igneous and, and sedimentary. Sedimentary rocks are formed by water. And so we can make another prediction about the Grand Canyon. And by the way, one of Bill Nye's challenges was, oh, you, you guys can't make any predictions. Ken Ham, you need, just give me one prediction that the creation model can make. Well, we can make many, many, many. He clearly hadn't done his study on what we can do on that. But here's a prediction that we would make about the Grand Canyon that would support our contention about the flood if, it's, if the prediction bears out. 
the layers above the great unconformity in the Grand Canyon, since that's where the flood begins, they should be sedimentary, except in whatever places where lava from beneath the great unconformity uh, has come up when all the fountains of the great deep are broken up, and they come up and form igneous rock layers that squeeze in between layers and so forth, which you do find there, Grand Canyon. Well, sure enough, the layers above the great unconformity in the canyon are all made of sedimentary rock, exactly as we predict. Okay, so secular geologists counter by saying, well, sedimentary rocks can form from wind too. Okay, so like that, that's what would be expected in a desert-like environment, which they predict to be the origin of the sandstone layers there in the Grand Canyon. Well, we'd make another counter-prediction about those rocks in the Grand Canyon. We predict that if a flood covered the earth and formed those layers of the Grand Canyon, fossilized aquatic creatures would have come up from the oceans, because you've got water dumping onto the earth during the flood, from the oceans, that's also part of this catastrophic plate tectonics. And so there should be aquatic creatures laced throughout these layers. Now that obviously wouldn't make sense if a desert environment is creating the layers of the Grand Canyon. Well, sure enough, we find marine shell fossils from ocean creatures throughout the Grand Canyon, like the famous nautiloid beds, uh, we find sponges. Another evidence, we find fossilized animal footprints on the canyon sandstone layers. Okay, so were they made in a desert environment from creatures walking on dry sand? Or is this on underwater sand? Well, scientists have studied those footprints and compared them to the footprints uh, of the, the creatures make on dry sand versus underwater sand, and they found that there's no doubt that these footprints had to have been made by creatures that were underwater when they made these tracks. They're not in a desert. Okay, scientists have studied the difference between the sand dunes that form slowly from wind in the desert and the similar sand dunes called sand waves that are made rapidly in the ocean by water transporting sand, and the angle of those sand dunes within the sandstone in the Grand Canyon, which are about 25 degrees, don't match the angles of the desert dunes formed by wind, which are consistently above 25 degrees as much as 30 to 34 degrees. Instead, they match the typical angle of ocean sand waves, giving more evidence that these canyon layers are formed underwater. Uh, other scientists have determined that if a sand wave is made under deeper water, that sand wave will be taller than the one made under shallower water. Well, the Grand Canyon has sand waves that are 30 to 60 feet high, meaning that the water depth that formed those must have been 150 to 300 feet at least. All right, now scientists are able to determine from those numbers that the water that formed the sand waves of the Grand Canyon must have been traveling at three to five feet per second. Extremely high speed. Only catastrophic events like major tsunamis have been known to be able to create such a setting. And that's precisely what we would predict happened during the flood. So the evidence shows that the layers of the Grand Canyon are formed rapidly in the flood. But could there have been a lot of time that passed between each of these cake layers, as evolutionary geologists argue? So imagine making a cake. So if you made one layer, and then you put some icing on it, and then you immediately made another layer to go on top of the first, the two layers would connect to each other smoothly, theoretically. Uh, you wives know how to do that, right? Now, if you opened, that, opened up your kitchen window and you put the cake on the windowsill at that point to let it cool or something before it hardened, 
And then you accidentally left it there, open to the air for a few weeks because you went out of town real quick, you, emergency happened, you go out of town. All right, so what would happen to the cake while you're gone? All right, so you, you come back to finish the cake. You guys paying attention? So you come back to finish the cake and you decide to add another layer. All right, so what's, what's the next layer going to look like if you did that? Which I don't suggest you do that. So some of it may have molded or disintegrated from decaying, right? Some of it may have been eaten by insects. If it rained a lot and got the cake wet, may even have little riverbeds in the cake, right, where the water ran off of it and eroded some of it. All right, so then if you, if you went ahead and made another layer and put it on top of that second, and you now looked at the side of that cake, you would notice that the line between the second and third layer, that's not smooth like the one between the first and second. There's now going to be dips and evidence of erosion and holes, evidence of time. Well, the Grand Canyon, you can look at the lines between these layers and assess whether there's evidence of any time passing between them. And what you find is there is no solid evidence that long periods of time passed between the layers. For many of these layers, there's plenty of evidence that there wasn't any appreciable time. These were formed rapidly uh, because the connection between the layers is very smooth. In some places, there is evidence that there must have been a certain amount of time between the layers, but not necessarily evidence of long periods, because the erosion that shows that there was time in between the layers can be explained as having happened quickly, possibly before the lower eroded layer had even lithified yet, kind of like what you would expect if it rained on the cake while it's still mushy or something. And so the evidence of time between various layers likely reveals the brief periods of time that would have elapsed due to the tide during the flood, for example, and how the moon was affecting the surges and waves of the flood. So keep in mind that the flood waters don't peak until apparently about five months into the flood, around 150, day 150. So this would be expected uh, from periodic enormous tsunamis that you could have this kind of effect that would have been occurring due to the catastrophic geologic activity at the base of the ocean during the flood. So bottom line, there's a lot of evidence that the Grand Canyon layers formed quickly in the flood. Okay, so how do we explain the Grand Canyon? Okay, now again, we typically just say, oh, the flood, right? And we just throw that out there, uh, to which if somebody challenges you with, okay, well, how, do, how do you explain that? Well, you're getting actual the technical with the evidence. You're going to struggle to be able to answer that without having this kind of information that the geologists are studying firsthand. If you just say the flood, you know, it's not really accurate. What uh, Modern creation geologists explain how the strata of the canyon are formed rapidly in the flood. The carving came apparently later. All right, so here's the thinking. Secular geologists today explain the floor of the Pacific Ocean, the oceanic plate, is slowly diving. It's subducting beneath uh, the western coast of the United States, which is a continental plate there. It's diving into the mantle. And as it does that, you've got volcanoes and mountains forming. And we don't have a problem with that, uh, but there is a difference between creationists and secular geologists on that process. Uh, creation geologists today believe that in the flood, this movement occurred at much faster rates than they do today. They're moving on the order of meters per second rather than today's rates of centimeters per year. And so that process would have caused uh, enormous amounts of wet materials, so of sediment, to rapidly pile up in the west and on the west coast. And then areas of the west coast would have been uplifted as the ocean floor is diving under and pushing up against that continent. 
This is happening slowly today. We would say it just happened really fast. So one area that was likely raised at that time was a huge saucer-shaped area of land today that geologists call the Colorado Plateau. All right, so this has got portions that, that span four states, uh, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico. The plateau is surrounded by mountains, including the Rockies, as well as the Kaibab Upwarp, and it, and it forms like a saucer. So wet sediments sliding from those two places, the plateau and the ocean sediment from the coast, are probably responsible for some of the layers that you see in the Grand Canyon, although some of the canyon layers have sediment that geologists believe had to have been transported there from sources that are hundreds of miles away, which is proof that a major catastrophic event was needed to move that sediment over to the, to the west and dump it there. Uh, that's not something that happens in any kind of gradual process today. All right, now, after the layers are formed, you have to have something carved through them. So many secular geologists believe the Colorado River is the culprit. Uh, it carved it very slowly over 70 million years. But years ago, before the Glen Canyon Dam was built, that now controls the movement of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, engineers found that the river was carrying 168 million tons of sediment out of the canyon every year. All right, so if the Colorado was carving the Grand Canyon over 70 million years using uniformitarian thinking, which is what they use, whatever rates you see going on today must have always been going on throughout time, 1.3 million cubic miles of sediment should have been carried to the delta at the end of the river. Now that's a volume 1,500 times the volume of the whole Grand Canyon. All right, now it shouldn't be difficult to find such an enormous amount of material, but that sediment isn't there, which indicates that that idea about how the canyon formed can't be right. Now, creation scientists today believe that an ice age would have occurred after the flood that lasted several hundred years. Again, I'll talk about that in that other seminar more in depth, but you've got warmer oceans, you've got increased evaporation, you've got volcanic aerosols in the atmosphere that would have partially shielded the earth from sun rays, which led to cooler summers, increased snowfall over the earth. Uh, the ice from that period is thought to have formed over an estimated 30% of the earth. And then as the earth gradually then calms down after the flood, the ice would have slowly melted, retreating back towards the poles and leaving these huge icy lakes along the way. So creationists believe at least three such lakes were left on the Colorado Plateau, and evidence of those ancient lakes supports that belief. All right, now as would be predicted from the nature of these Ice Age lakes, uh, the natural, which we have evidence like at Lake Missoula, of this very thing occurring, uh, the natural dams that held the water likely breached one by one like dominoes, which would have rapidly carved the Grand Canyon. All right, someone says, all right, now, wait a minute. Is there evidence that water could rapidly carve through rock like, it, like that? And the answer is yes. Here's four quick examples. Number one, 1926, the Burlingame Canyon near Walla Walla, Washington. A 30-meter deep, 500-meter long canyon was carved in less than six days uh, when engineers tried to steer abnormally high amounts of water from a canal into Pine Creek. Uh, the Lake Missoula flood, which I talked about briefly just a moment ago, this is a well-documented flood from, believe it or not, the Ice Age. Water breached an ice dam, released 500 cubic miles of water, 
That's ten times the combined flow of all the rivers in the world released within two days. It destroyed 16,000 square miles of terrain. It cut hundreds of feet through solid rock. It created canyons like Dry Falls, uh, which is 20 times the size of Niagara. It created cliffs. It carved 50 cubic miles of earth. Uh, This one from the Grand Canyon carving that occurred due to the Colorado River. In June 1983, a heavy snowfall occurred that caused engineers to divert water from Glen Canyon into the dam spillways there, and it caused chunks of three-foot-thick steel-reinforced concrete to be torn out of this tunnel, just ripped it out. Uh, Tens of thousands of cubic feet of concrete were needed to refill these holes. Uh, So water has no problem cutting through rock if you've got enough of it and you've got it moving fast enough. Uh, I was in northern Georgia, went to a gold mining museum where they talked about a form of uh, gold mining that became popular during the California gold rush in 1853. Hydraulic mining. And this kind of mining, instead of digging or using picks on an area that they think has gold, the extremely high-pressure jets of water are just directed on the area. Uh, sandstones like the kind that we find at Grand Canyon uh, and uh, hard rock have been cut through by this form of mining. Uh, so this high-pressure uh, stream of water breaks up the rock or the sediment, carries materials away in a slurry where they can be panned for gold. Uh, the Oakland Museum of California describes the water canyons they used as literally blasting mountains to smithereens and leaving huge craters. Uh, when it's all said and done, hydraulic mining, they say, displaced one and a half billion cubic yards of soil and rocks from the Sierra hillsides. So water can create canyons fast, uh, contrary to what many geologists believe. The Grand Canyon can be explained well by young earth creationists, in fact, even better uh, than evolutionary theories. So again, new area of research AP is moving into with this, uh, with actual hands-on field work. And notice, uh, it would be hard to answer a lot of the questions being raised without this kind of field work. Uh, all right, one other area that I want to talk about from a trip that I did uh, in uh, 2015. Um, this is back in the same area that I went to study seismites, but this time I got to sit at the feet of who I would say is probably the leading dinosaur fossil expert uh, among the young earth creation geologist, Dr. Art Chadwick. Uh, his team has excavated more than 18,000 dinosaur fossils. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie, Is Genesis History? Did you see this, anybody? Really? You guys got to see that movie. Um, it's a movie that came out in theaters. It's the young earth, the leading young earth creation scientists giving the case for the biblical model. It was a powerful movie. I've got copies of it back there you can purchase. These, these, these are the guys that I got to go with into the field to study this stuff. Art Chadwick is on that movie as well. His team has excavated more than 18,000 dinosaur fossils on this one ranch there in Wyoming that's owned by some, some uh, creationists. Uh, Dwayne Bryant, who's an instructor, or was an instructor out of the Southwest School of Biblical Studies, um, he also does some writing for us in the area of archaeology. He was able to come out there, as well as Noah, our, one of our interns. Dr. Mike Houts, who's a nuclear engineer at NASA, uh, and also does some writing for us. He was able to drop by as well uh, to help in that project. Dr. Chadwick is a professor at a denominational university down in Texas, which again highlights the fact that the leaders in the field are not members of the church. I believe we need to to fix that. 
He teaches geology courses, including a course on dinosaurs and creation. And each summer he brings students up to Wyoming for a month and they camp out in tents at this site and then excavate dinosaur fossils during the day and hear lectures on dinosaurs during the evening. And so we were able to come to the, to the dig site during that time period for a few days to learn from Dr. Chadwick and do some dinosaur ex- fossil excavation. So as with my trip to Wyoming in 2014, we're working in the Cretaceous sediment there in the Lance Formation. So this is sediment, again, thought to be laid down towards the end of the flood. And this is one of the primary spots in the world where you find Triceratops fossils. Uh, we also find a lot of T-Rex, Nanotyrannus fossils, and you find Pachycephalosaurus uh, fossils there as well. Lots of Edmontosaurus. In fact, uh, this is a, a maxillary of an Edmontosaurus, the upper jawbone that I got to excavate while I was there. Uh, Dwayne, Noah, and I were able to dig up several dinosaur fossils, uh, lots of teeth and tendons. Dinosaur fossil fossilized tendons are all over the place there. All right, so of special interest to me uh, was, was this, again, last item on this list. We're trying to assess how hard it would be to do something, uh, you know, to have a creation research center staffed with scientists that do this kind of thing. And so the big, the, specifically with the dinosaur excavation, we're getting a glimpse at the evidence that, that could tell us what might have happened towards the end of the flood where the dinosaurs are being wiped out in mass. <laughs> So that's the big question that everyone has. You know, what happened to the dinosaurs? And so that's the question creationists are studying at this site. Uh, So on this ranch that we went to where Dr. Chadwick is overseeing the excavation again in what we would consider to be flood sediment, you've got five different fossil quarries that are actively being excavated and dozens of dinosaur fossils are being dug up and carefully documented every day while they're there over the summer. Uh, so this picture on the left is one of those fossil quarries where you can see the fossils in the positions that they were found with the dirt removed. And so as you can see, you've got thousands of fossils here. Of course, this is actually a huge area that's just you know made a bird's eye view uh, where you can see that. This is the quarry I was working in. The excavation team documents the location of every fossil very carefully using GPS and they take pictures of each fossil, they develop 3D representations of each of those, and then put them back into this picture based on the coordinates that they took so that Dr. Chadwick can get a big picture of what happened to these dinosaurs. So there's actually depth to these pictures. So again, we're just looking down from above, a bird's eye view, so some of these aren't exactly on the same plane. There's depth to that. Here's another couple of the quarries. So based on what has already been excavated over the last few years, And yes, as you can imagine, this is taking years. There's so many here. By making estimates over the entire area concerning what's left to be excavated, Dr. Chadwick believes there's over 15,000 dinosaurs that are represented in this area where he's already dug up over 18,000 fossils. Now, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like something pretty catastrophic happened that wiped these guys out and buried them pretty quickly. Now, the standard secular explanation for what we find in that area is, well, okay, they died gradually over time. Uh, They were trying to cross a river during flood season, and the corpses were washed down to a river bend, and they just piled up there over time. And then they gradually got covered up with sediment. And so they say, okay, that would explain how this wasn't some rapid global catastrophic process. This was a slow uniform process. Now again, you get out there and you do the actual field work and you can find that doesn't work. 
Great are the works of the Lord, they're studied by all who have find pleasure in them. Psalm 111.2. This is another example where you can find, no, this is powerful evidence of a flood. Number one, the bones are not found oriented as would be expected in a river current. They're randomly oriented. So again, the thousands of bones that are being excavated by Dr. Chadwick and his team at this site are documented with multiple GPS points so that they can know exactly where the bones were found and their orientation, and the bones are not found in a current-like orientation. Also, the bones aren't found piled as though at a river bend. Instead, they're randomly distributed all over the entire area. And so if you take into account the sites that he's excavated, which grow significantly each year, and then you extrapolate to the areas that he hasn't yet excavated that they're working on there, Here's what you have. So these, again, these bones are disarticulated. And what that means is the skeleton of the whole intact dinosaur isn't found. Instead, you find bones that are separated, isolated from each other all over the place. They're disarticulated. All right, now, if corpses are piling up on a river bend, and in order to preserve the bones for fossilization before they're scavenged, they have to be buried rapidly there. Okay, well, you would expect at least some of the remains to be articulated. Now, the bones should be together as skeletons, or at least partial skeletons. That's not what you have in these quarries. You have disarticulated bones. Okay, also, if the dinosaur corpses are being successively piled up each year, again, make more predictions here to see, you know, does that model work? Okay, you would expect there to be animals in layers. You'd find bone beds on top of each other representing successive yearly events. Again, that's not what we find. Instead, the dinosaurs, the dinosaur fossils in the area are in a single bed, what's called a graded bed, where you have the larger bones at the bottom and then progressively smaller towards the top, indicating a single rapid catastrophic event was responsible for taking these dinosaurs and burying thousands of 15,000 dinosaurs in this small area. And so notice, we're talking, these creatures were totally, something happened that ripped the dinosaurs into little pieces and then transported them in an enormous water catastrophe and dumped them in this area. And we're not talking about, you know, they just drowned. I mean, you do find that. You find many dinosaurs in what's called the epistatonic death posture, where their heads are thrown back and their tails are curved up as though they're drowning. The epistatonic death posture, you find that whenever you find uh, some of the full fossilized skeletons of the dinosaurs, you find them in that, dra- that death drowning posture. But in this case, you've got the, I mean, keep in mind, this is the area where we've got the seismites too. In fact, you find dinosaur fossils sticking out of some of these seismites. So you've got to imagine uh, the mountains are forming rapidly from continents smashing into each other on the order of meters per second. It would, it would basically liquefy the land. There would be such power from that, if anything would just be disintegrated that's on the earth. It would just be totally obliterated. And so that's what we're finding. We're finding little pieces of these creatures that have been totally ripped apart and then just transported and dumped in this area. Does that sound like some rivers, some, some dinosaurs drowned and then were carried down to a river, the ed, uh, edge of a riverbed? Or does it sound, like, sound to you like a major catastrophic flood <laughs> uh, wiped these guys out, destroyed these creatures? 
That fits, of course, the biblical model. That's exactly what we predict to be the case, and it is a testament to the power of the flood. It's a testament also to the holiness of our God and what He thinks about sin. We can't, we can't forget that. The flood, when we look more and more deeply at what happened in the flood, and you go out there and study this stuff, the more you will be in awe of what occurred. And you will, you will, re, you will realize what God thinks about sin and why it's not something to mess with. Uh, we need to, to stay away from it. Again, uh, an event like the flood would be capable of cre- creating what we see out there in Wyoming. A single graded bone bed. Uh, it would be capable of creating the type and structure of the stone that we're finding in these dinosaur layers. And it would be capable of causing these mudslides that would, that would catastrophically kill and bury some 15,000 dinosaurs and preserve them for fossilization. So hopefully that's as interesting to you as it is to me, and it's exciting to take science and use the knowledge that we have in science and apply it to what you find in the Bible, and the biblical creation model. It's an exciting thing. As I said to you, it's also concerning to me because we don't have enough members of the church doing this, and yet we need that work to respond to the critics which are going to be coming out of the woodworks even more uh, than ever before since naturalism is on the increase in our country. Uh, biblical, the whole biblical idea at all, much less creation, is being scoffed at. We need to be ready to teach people the truth on these subjects and to be able to defend what the Bible says on these issues. And again, uh, we would very much covet your prayers as we launch further into this uh, this area, and we would even more uh, covet your financial assistance in being able to do this kind of work. If that's something you're interested in doing, please be sure to to let me know. All right, so that is what I wanted to cover tonight. So I will leave it up to you, Mark.